0: I'll have to admit something today. I I have been going to the gym now for several years. You know, I'm getting older and not getting any younger, and I will still have to say that my favorite machine at the gym is still the vending machine. Until that faithful day in which they decided to put healthy stuff in the vending machine, what's up with that? I've seen some of these signs on vending machines. This one says, this machine is not dispensing food, but is accepting cash donations. (laughs) You understand what I mean by that, right? Here's another one. Uh, Put Cheetos back in this machine, or I will snip the power cable. You have one week. (laughs) Or how about this one? I like vending machines because snacks are better when they fall. As a matter of fact, if I buy a candy bar at the store, oftentimes I will drop it, so that it achieves its maximum flavor potential. <laughs> How about this one as a vending machine? Cheap intelligence test. Insert ten dollars. <laughs> You'll think about that one, right? <laughs> oh, good. You know, sometimes we treat prayer like this. You know, we we say our ten our fathers for extra good luck. I, I mean, I mean providence, right? Um, and I'm just thinking, well, what's wrong with 20 or 30? Or how about 100? You know, really get your money's worth, right? But Jesus called this pagan babbling. It's it's not Christ-centered, and it's really not heartfelt prayer. It's pagan babbling. I, I want you to, to listen to this. You know, in, in the Lord's Prayer, where uh, it says, give us this day our daily bread. This was interesting. Um the Colorado Legal Secretaries Association newsletter says that if an attorney had written the line in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, it might have read something like this. Are you ready? We respectfully petition, request, and entreat that due and adequate provision be made. This date and date first above inscribed for satisfying of petitioners' nutritional requirements and for the organizing of such methods of allocation and distribution as may be deemed necessary and proper to assure the reception by and for said petitioners of such quantity of cereal products hereinafter called bread as shall in the judgment of the afore and petitioners constitute sufficient amount. Now that's babbling, right? Now, I don't want to go too far, but I will have to say that we can treat prayer much like a vending machine. We can put our donation in, if you will, and expect God to give us exactly what we want. Now, I don't want to go too far, but understand these scripture passages. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? How about this one? All things are possible to him who believes. Or... All things for which we pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted you. Everything you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. Now, even though I'm, I'm kind of making a, a little bit of fun of as far as how we can sometimes pray and and. Really treat prayer somewhat superstitiously, almost as if we're sitting on Santa's lap and we're giving him our Christmas list. Do you know what I'm talking about? And Lord, I would, I would want, uh, you know, I would want this, and I would want that. And God, would you please give me this, and please give me this, and would you do this, and would you do that? And I'm not saying that we should not petition God, but there is something that's absent in that type of praying. Because many times when we pray and pray and over and over and over, and we're kind of wondering, okay, God, where's the answer to this wish list, so to speak, to this list, these, these petitions, where's the answer? We can get discouraged. I believe that prayer is a window into our hearts. And my question then this morning would be, what would God see through that window? Are we offering up a listless list? A list of disheartened requests. Or, you may have heard this before, prayer is not just preparation for the battle. It is the battle. We're going through a a sermon series entitled The Battle for Peace. and you are praying for the lost... You are seeking, you are asking that God reconcile them with God, bringing peace between them and God, washing away their sins, bringing them into fellowship with God, rescuing them from their sins. This is a request and and a petition for peace, but there is a battle that will go before that, before that answer. Today, I want us to look at 1 Samuel chapter 1. There is a battle that Hannah had that lasted many years. Many of us have gone through a similar battle in our prayer life, but to the point at times we have given up. At times we have become wearied and we have simply offered up our listless list of requests. God wants to do something in our hearts in the process of this battle, church. We are changed. When God looks into that heart through that window of prayer, may God see a changed heart. I believe we're gonna see that this morning in Hannah. You're gonna if you've turned to first Samuel chapter one, we're gonna start with verse one. Read through verse twenty. There was a certain man from Ramathagim later called Rama, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zeph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, and I am not going to get into that this morning, um, as far as that is a theological issue, because in the Old Testament, though it was permitted, God said ixnay on that in the New. So I'm not going to speak to that. Sorry. So he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Now Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man, that is Elkanah, went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters, both of which are plural. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. I want you to underline that phrase, the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival, that's referring to the other wife, Peninnah, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Reminds me of when I was a kid going on vacations and my brothers would just constantly irritate me. Goodness. But her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. She made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. And she kept on praying to the Lord. Eli observed, her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I mean, it's bad enough to be provoked by another person, but now being falsely accused, not so, my Lord. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. I want you to underline that. And the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. So here we have... Very interesting story, and I, and I want to just point three things out. Number one, Hannah's circumstances. We're going to look at that, then we want to see what Hannah did, and then we want to see what God did. And I want us to see, first of all, number one, Hannah's circumstance, excuse me, Hannah's circumstances that pressed her to pray. Now, as we go through this, I want you perhaps to think of some circumstances you are in presently that is that are pressing you to pray. For Hannah, she was barren, meaning she couldn't have children. <clears throat> in fact, the scripture even goes so far as to say that the Lord closed her womb. Now, we understand that that is a biological situation, but in essence, scripture is saying that even though these circumstances were so hard, God was superintending them and purposefully chose not to heal her yet. So she was barren, Elkanah. I mean, what a guy statement! She un- he understands the rivalry that's going on, and the first question he asks is, "Hannah, why are you weeping?" Like, hello get a clue. And then he says, why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? And this is a classic guy statement. Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Love you, Elkanah, but. <laughs> All right. This is like the sorrow in her soul. She's barren. This is, this is her, the cry of her heart. Now I'm not going to say maybe that every woman has this, but in in Hannah's heart, she has been truly longing for, desiring that God would bless her with children. Um, Some of my kids, they, Kate, you know, she wanted a gajillion babies when she wanted to get married one day, whoever that was, but, uh, you know, her focus was the kids, right? Sorry, Zach. I mean, she loves you too. But she wanted kids. That was her dream. She would play house, like, all the time. And I would be drug in to be as some dad. And, and, and of course, it was the Barbies and all of this. But she wanted so much to be a mom. And, and, and this is what's in Hannah's heart. This is the cry of her heart. This, this is like her dream come true. Give me a child. And year after year, God kept answering her prayer, no. Not yet, no, not yet. Here's how bad it went. Peninnah, it says, has sons and daughters. That means at least two sons and probably more, and at least two daughters and possibly more. So that means she had at least four children. Now, if you space them out minimally six years, possibly 10 or more years, and the reason why I'm pointing this out is when she had her children that prompted her to provoke her rival. And this is, this is why we don't have two wives, okay? <laughs> she, they were rivals. There was jealousy that was going on here. There, there was emotions that were stirred up. Peninnah would provoke Hannah because Hannah had no children. Year after year after year, which means at least six years and possibly more than 10 years this went on. And Hannah is being, she's being driven from this heartbreak to pray and cry out and say, God, please answer my prayer and give me a son. But year after year, she is simply left, leaving the Lord's house with her disappointment, anguish of heart, bitterness of soul. It says there at at verse 10. Year after year, this hurt reoccurred because the Lord had closed her womb. Can I ask you that, this? When it says that God closed her, actually says it twice, when God closed her womb, was that a good thing or a bad thing? The thing that you're facing and that you're praying for, and God may well be saying, not yet. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is God being unjust in your circumstances? Maybe you're praying for deliverance. Maybe you're praying for abundant provision. Maybe you're praying for breakthrough. Maybe you're praying for lost loved ones. Oh my goodness, surely God will want to rescue them, but God, what is going on? Praying year after year, 15 years of me praying, finally feeling so wearied, and at that moment, God in his grace rescued my older brother. He was a bouncer in a bar, got in trouble with the pagan president, president of the gang, the pagans, and uh, he had a a death sentence put on him and god rescued him from that his wife left him man i tell you what he wasn't just down on the ground uh, there were boot prints all over him and god rescued him out of all of that he had a tremendous testimony as far as what god did i was shocked he said mike i gotta come up well i Gotta come down. He's in Delaware. I was in Virginia, but I gotta come down. And I just want to spend time with you. I want you to see God has really changed me because he was just one of those guys. Oh, I pr- I prayed the sinner's prayer. I did this. You know, I went to church today and thinking everything was good and everything was not good because his heart never really changed. And he said, Mike, I, I just I just want to spend some time with your, you and your family. And he came down and just blew me away. God was speaking prophetically to him, he was immersing himself in the word and in prayer. God was giving him opportunities. Because he had left the, the bar scene and now he was working in a, a juvenile detention center and he was starting a Bible study as one of the uh, as an employee there. Kids were getting saved. God was giving him words for the kids. It was just amazing. Where are you at as you're praying? Scripture makes it abundantly clear here. The Lord closed your room. Was that unjust? I mean, can you feel the weight and the gravity of that question? Was that unjust? Because we can feel this way sometimes when we're praying and, and we're up against this situation, and we're thinking, of course God wants to grant this request, but He does not. And we're wondering, God, where are you? Where is the justice of God in my situation today right now? Now, we don't see Hannah accusing God of that. She's not pointing the finger and saying, God, you're unjust. But it does bring about bitterness of soul. Not bitterness towards God, but bitterness of soul. So, what did Hannah do? And out of that bitterness of soul, it says in verse 10, now the NA, NASB says affliction instead of bitterness of soul. And that's more a translation than a literal. For, you know, once in a little bit, the NIV actually translates something literally. And the NASB translates it a little bit more flexibly. The NIV is what says the literal translation in Bitterness of Soul. But you get this idea, this, this, this hurt and this anguish, no offense towards God, but she's hurting to the point where every time she goes to the tabernacle, it's not a temple yet, tabernacle at Shiloh, not Jerusalem, that This is an opportunity all the way there, all the way back. While they're there, Peninnah provokes her, And I can only imagine it happens at home, but this is like a special occasion. This is when we get to go to the Lord and there's sacrifices and we worship him and we're praying. And it's as if Peninnah is saying, see, God is not for you. Look at all my children. God is obviously for me. And she's provoking her to this point. Where Hannah is so grieved, weeps, cries out to God, she doesn't eat. And I imagine, though it says it before verse 9, in verse 9 it does say that when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, that Hannah stood up. But I would imagine Hannah did not eat and drink. Actually, after her prayer, it says she did that. But she is just, she's so overwhelmed with grief. You been there? Have you ever been at that place, just feeling overwhelmed with grief? And I can re- I can remember God when I was praying for uh, ministry, and, and as I had graduated from seminary, and God had provided miraculously. Uh, surely now that I'm graduated, you're going to move me on. And God, what are you going to do here? what door are you going to open? And instead of opening doors, God closed every single one. And for an entire month, I was in this anguish and grief. I truly felt that God had abandoned me. (laughs) And my wife, as gracious as she is, she knows how to call a spade a spade. And she just said, Michael, what are you doing down there? You're not just praying, you are, you're moaning, you're having a pity party, and God is telling you to just get up, move on. Being a guy, I'm sure I didn't respond real well to that, but I eventually did, and we began seeking God. And no door opened up right away. If anything, the doors were closed and locked. God, really? This is what I've been looking for. Or forward to. Have you ever felt that grief? Have you ever felt that anguish? Even to the point where you lost your appetite? Is God unjust? After all, he was the one who closed her womb. Maybe through, of course, a secondary agency. God used Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem and bring punishment, but God did not create the evil in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. But he did use him to bring about his ultimate purposes. And God is using this circumstance. Whatever reason, biologically, physiologically, was causing Hannah to be barren, there's many of them, she couldn't have children. Anguish, grief. It brings her now after, and I am supposing somewhere between six and ten years, and if Peninnah had more children, even longer than that, but year after year after year, dealing with this grief, it brings Hannah to this point where now she prays, and I would imagine she prays a different prayer. And for that reason, it's recorded here. Maybe in the past, it was her listless list. list. She climbed up into Santa's lap, and God, I would pray for a son, and I would pray for your blessing on my husband. And and did I tell you that I want a son? And and over and just praying that list. And and, but now it's different. And I say it's different because after all of these years, it's, it's as if the author, and perhaps this is Samuel writing this, but she, she does something different, and for that reason, it's recorded here, and something happens. She, she prays this vow. She offers a vow to the Lord. Now, vows are very Old Testamentish, they, <clears throat> they, are, they have everything to do with the Mosaic law. <clears throat> you would offer a sacrifice. She's at the tabernacle, I'm sure they've made sacrifices. And then you give a promise to the Lord. Uh, very much unlike, for example, a marriage vow. So I guess in marriage there's a lot of sacrifice, but not this type of sacrifice anyway. So there is a, an animal sacrifice, and then there is a promise to the Lord that you make good on. And, and Ecclesiastes and other places says, make sure you fulfill your vow. If you make a promise to God, if you make a vow and I, I don't have the Hebrew word in front of me, but it's very specific. It, this type of vow is unlike any other type of vow. That's, and it's a common, but it's used about a 100 times in the Old Testament, this word for vow. And it's very characteristic, and there were, there, it was very specific. And she's following through with this. And there's the sacrifice and her death. There's this promise, this vow to God that if you will do this, then I will do this. And this is what she prays. God. If you give me a son, I will give him back to you. You know, I forgot to mention, but before she even prays that, or or while she's praying, she begins with, remember me. Not because God had forgotten her and, oh, yes, yes, your name again is me a second, and then no, remember me as in God, look upon my misery, remember me, look down and see this hard circumstance that I brought before you over and over and over again. Remember me, in other words, step into my grief and grant me my request. Turn your heart to me, God. So, in Hebrew, they use the word remember me. So, Hervel, if you give me a son and I will give my son back to you to serve you. Think about that. She is asking God, give me something. And this thing that she is requesting, this baby, this child, is something that she has been looking forward to for years and years and years. And if you give me this child, I will surrender the privilege of being his mother. I will give back to you what you give to me. Now, I'm not saying that God is now saying to you that he wants to bring you to that point where you make some vow. Good luck on making the animal sacrifice, but you make this vow to God and now whatever he gives to you, you got to give back to him, okay? I'm not saying that that's what God is leading you to do, but do understand this, whatever he gives you, it is a very special answer and that is his anyway but i am suggesting this that god had to bring hannah to this point of so of such surrender to him that she said this thing that i request i will give back to you now she's requesting a son Generally, sons would live under your roof longer than a woman because generally a man would marry longer, excuse me, marry older than a girl would. Because the guy, he had other things to do. He had to make a living, he had to build a house, and when he had done that, then he would propose, or at least he would propose and then build the house, but he would be financially stable enough to be able to marry. Now, the girl did not have to do that, she would be living under her parents' roof, generally the guy was much older, or at least older, than the girl. Guys would marry a little bit later, ladies a little bit younger. So in requesting a son, she in essence is requesting uh, a, a young man that would be able to stay in her home longer, but she gives him to the Lord. She even says, not only am I going to give him to the Lord, but he is going to be a Nazarite to the Lord. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Samson was a Nazarite. Special ways of living. No razor put to his head. I'm struggling picturing Samuel, but Samuel had very, very long hair. That was an outward sign that he was a Nazarite. Completely devoted to the Lord in that. And it's just remarkable that she comes to this place of such utter grief and bitterness of soul that she is willing to give back to God, completely give back to God what she is asking for. Now, what I mean by that is that though Samuel would be able to stay with her, we read about this verses 21 and on, That even though Samuel would stay with her until he was weaned, which generally in the Hebrew culture was anywhere between the age of three and five, then he would be given to the Lord. So let's take the outer age of five, and then at five years of age, (laughs) some of you are thinking, well, I've got a five-year-old. Yes, okay, weaned at five, um, she would take the child, she took Samuel to the tabernacle, and... Dumped him on Eli. No, offered him to Eli. (laughs) I'm still trying to put this one together. She comes to the tabernacle and says, remember the prayer? And I asked for a child, a son, and God gave me the son. I said, I give him back to the Lord. Here he is. Good luck. I'm just thinking, if I'm Eli, what do I do at that point? Thanks, but no thanks. Or I'm 90 years old. I'm not sure I can. He wasn't quite 90. I think he died at 90 or 91. But, But he is not a young whippersnapper. He is not. He's going through daddyhood again. Um, But she offers a sacrifice. She gives the child to him, visits him at least once a year. It's possibly she visited more. I mean, Shiloh wasn't that far from Rama, 10, 15 miles. But it does say that every year she brought him a robe, you know, some clothing. And but she visited him at least once a year. Now, I want us to look at what God did. The third thing, what did God do? Obviously, God gave her a son, God had closed her womb until the circumstances in her life brought her to a place, brought her heart to a place such that if there was a window, we would call that her prayer, is that window into her heart, God looked into her heart and saw something, at least from his perspective, in essence was saying, now you're ready. I don't know what ready looks like for you. I don't even know what ready looks like for me on some things that I have been petitioning the Lord in which I have been offering up to him. I don't know what he is looking for in my heart and I simply say, God, whatever you've got to do in me, do that. Now, she gives him a son and Hannah, not Elkanah, he probably surrendered that right to Hannah, Hannah named him Samuel. Samuel means Samu, which means hears. El, short for Elohim, means God, hears God, or God hears. And so she names him Samuel because thank you, God, you have finally heard me. all, all the time, hearing her, please understand, but you've answered my request. It, it's, it's as if my prayers, you've, they, they, they reached your heart and, and you said finally, yes, and instead of closing my womb, you've opened my womb, you've granted my request. God hears. I want us to look at one other thing in this name, Samuel. Maybe you need to turn the page to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, at least the first half, we discover Hannah's prayer <clears throat> after he reaches the age of being weaned she's now excuse me she is she gives Samuel to the tabernacle to Eli to the service of the Lord however god will use him she doesn't know well let's look at something two verses i want us to he in on Look at the end of verse 10 in her prayer. Referring to God, he will give strength to his king. Did Israel have a king? Absolutely not. They had judges. Eli actually was one of those judges. No king. He will give the Lord, Yahweh, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn. That generally means the strength of His anointed, Meshiach, is the Hebrew word there. This obviously is a reference, a prophetic reference to David, not Saul, by the way, but David, God's chosen, God's anointed. Kings were anointed, and he was, David, one day became a king, but that's years and years and years down the road, that David would become king. But her son would anoint that king when he was but, I don't know, 16, 17 or so years of age. Anoint him king. I also believe this may may very well be a prophetic utterance concerning the coming Messiah as both king And Mashiach, anointed one, Isaiah 61, the anointing. The Holy Spirit has come upon me and anointed me to proclaim the good news. Now, mentioning this because I want you to see that in her prayer, Hannah is prophetic. Let's go to verse 5, actually 4 and 5. Let's see a little bit more. This is the second prophecy I'm putting in. Taking it out of chronological order, of course, or at least some order. I'm starting with verse 10 and then going back to four and five. But it says in verse 4, and the bows of the warriors, excuse me, the bows of the warriors are broken. Sounds some, somewhat contradictory, doesn't it? But those who stumbled are armed with strength. Do you see the contrast there? The irony of this. Those who were full higher themselves, those yeah, those who were full higher themselves, those who were full hire themselves out for food. Doesn't that sound contradictory? Ironic? But those who were hungry, hunger no more. She who was barren, now she's coming a little closer to home, isn't she? She who was barren has borne seven children. But she who has had many sons pines away. Can you hear an echo of her circumstance in there? How ironic. The barren one has seven sons. The one who has many sons pines away in grief. The barren woman, she's supposed to be the one in sorrow, right? Not anymore. No, actually, Hannah, when she gives Samuel at the age of weaning to the service of the Lord, Eli blesses her And it says she goes home and she ends up having three sons and two daughters. Not all at once, at least I don't think so, but over a period of time, so three plus two plus one is six, so she has six children, not seven, as her prophecy says, but let's understand this is a prophecy and the number seven just simply means complete. Actually, if you were to go to Proverbs, he says, may the thief have to repay seven times. Technically, according to the Mosaic law, depending on what he stole, generally he'd have to repay four times, sometimes three, but four times, depending on what he stole, but not seven. And so the the proverb is simply saying, may the, the one who steals have to repay in full, completely. May the barren woman have the perfect number, the complete divine number of children. Now, I'm going to assume that her seven was the six children. Her complete number was the six children. Now, I'm pointing this out because Hannah is prophetic. God moves her in the prophetic. She has learned, apparently, to be a weeping intercessor and finally receiving what God or or what she has been asking God of. Now, I want us to go back to this name, Samuel. God hears. Now, here's the interesting thing, Samu meaning here; El meaning God. It doesn't, there's no methodology of how you put a name together. This one, she points out, she calls him Samuel because God hears. Prophetically, however, that name means he hears God. He hears God. This is going to become significant in just a moment. Turn to chapter 3, verse 1. The boy Samuel, we don't know how old he is, but the boy Samuel is ministered before the Lord under Eli. And it says, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. We just learned of how Eli's sons were in rebellion against God not offering the proper sacrifices, sleeping with the women at the entry to the tabernacle, living in sin, horrible leaders. And because of this and just the general attitude, I would suggest to you in Israel, that God did not give prophetic words. God did not give visions. They were very rare. But along comes Samuel, a young boy, God already starts to speak to him. And in his speaking to him, he calls it a vision. He has a vision of the Lord. He hears from God even as a young boy. And then as we skip over to verse 19, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up and he let none of his words fall to the ground. God backed up every word that he spoke through Samuel and they were fulfilled. That's what it means that not one of his words fell to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh. And I would suggest probably just to Samuel. But the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh. And there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. He hears God. Samuel, in chapter 7 is used by God to usher in a revival in the land of Israel. He is the one who the people, though they request a king, and Samuel says, no, God eventually says, give them what they want. And so he gives them what they want. And then that Samuel, excuse me, that that king, Saul, proves to be an unfit king, and God says, I've got another one. A man after my own heart. And this is my choo- This is the one I am choosing. Saul was the king for the people, David the king for the Lord. A man after God's own heart. God didn't look on the outward, but he looked at the heart, it says in chapter 16. And for that reason, he chose David. And David becomes the plumb line of character for all other subsequent kings. This is the the significance of this young man, Samuel. God used him in the history of Israel to usher in revival and set in the most renowned king who would eventually, generations down the road, give birth to the Messiah, Jesus himself. Leonard Ravenhill's book, Revival Praying, he quotes from Samuel Chadwick. There is no power like that of prevailing prayer, of Abraham pleading for Sodom, Jacob wrestling in the stillness of the night, Moses standing in the breach, Hannah intoxicated with sorrow, David, brokenhearted with remorse and grief, Jesus in sweat of blood. Add to this list from the records of the church church, your personal observation and experience, and always there is the cost of passion unto blood. Such prayer prevails. It turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings power, it brings fire, it brings rain, it brings life, it brings God. W.E. Beterwolf, Wolf, I think I'm pronouncing that last name correctly. He says this, if Hannah's prayer for a son had been answered at the time she set for herself, the nation might never have known the mighty man of God that is found in Samuel. As Psalms says, Selah. Think about that. Pause. If Hannah had become discouraged and just offered up some listless list of petitions so that prayer never became that powerful instrument in her life, that all it was was a window into a defeated, discouraged heart, Samuel may never have been born. Had he been, and she not vowed to give him to the Lord, what trust in the Lord for that, by the way, he may never have become the man of God that changed a nation. And where would Israel have been? Where would David be? Certainly not in the king's palace, but probably still in the shepherd's field. You see, God has a purpose in our praying. Perhaps instead of Samuel, she would have named him John, which means gracious. That's a great name, John the Baptist. But no, Samuel. God hears. He hears God. Leonard Ravenhill goes on to say this. From the time of conception until the appointed time of deliverance, Hannah had to stay with her precious burden. Alas and alas, this is a rush age. And if we could, we, could, we would rush God too. We would want big blessing for small installments, the birth of revival, but not the pain. Again, Sila, Think about that. Your circumstances, are they driving you to desperate prayer? That It's changing you. Or, or are they prompting you to give up or perhaps shift your life into neutral so that you begin to wonder why press in? Why pray like this? It's easier to just give up my list, list, list. It's easier to just sit on Papa's lap, Santa's lap, and just give him my petitions. There's no emotion. There's there's. There's nothing that I am invested in in this. It's just I'm doing my Christian duty and I I want to at least do that and, and praise God for our Christian duty. Praise God for our discipline to do it. But God is wanting more than just your petitions, more than just your list. He is wanting your heart. He is wanting circumstances to begin to crowd out that lack of devotion. He's wanting the circumstances to press in that you would press in to God. He is wanting these circumstances to bring you to this point that nothing else would be able to do for you. But that point of desperation before God, brokenhearted before him, in which now you are poised, not ready to throw in the towel, but to press into God with greater fervor. Is your circumstance throwing water on your flickering flame or igniting a fire in your soul? I want to quickly list six things here. Write them down as quickly as you can. (laughs) I'll go through them a little slowly, but I'm not going to be spending time with them. Desperate prayer. This is what it looks like. I, I just, I'm, The Lord shared six things with me. I want to share them with you. Desperate prayer. Number one, really, really obvious. It's desperate. Yes, that means that there is sacrifice and that there is cost. As a matter of fact, there's no sacrifice or cost that's too high. Have you come to that point where you feel that your sacrifice is too high, it's too much? Are you backpedaling? Oh, God, this is costing me too much time. It's costing me too much sacrifice. It's costing me too much emotion. I'd rather die to this and just walk away from it. Is that where you're at? Because if so, Satan has effectively thrown water on that flickering flame. God wants to ignite a fire in your soul and through that window of prayer see the spirit of god this fury as i talked about last week this fury in prayer crying out to god refusing to give in there is such a resolve that's developed in your heart the fire has not melted the metal it has tempered it and made it stronger Desperate prayer is first and foremost, number one, desperate. It is far more than just emotional, number two. It becomes determined and bold because the prayer presses into God and thereby begins to hear God and pray according to his will. When your prayers become more than just an emotional plea, and I believe for Hannah they were. They became a resolution, a determination. As she pressed into God, as you press into God, you will find this to be true. As you press into God, it's like the woman touching the hem of Jesus' garment. As you press into God, you sense the spirit of God and he's leading you. And as you press into God and you refuse to give up, he begins to share his heart and birth his vision, not yours, but his vision in your heart. And you begin to pray according to his will. And your prayer becomes less and less about you and what you want and more and more about God's will and what He wants. And God bursts this prayer, a powerful prayer by His Spirit, this fire in your soul. He begins to birth that in you. God sees it through that window of prayer. It's far more than emotional. Number three, it refuses to give up as a result. And I have been at this number three so many times in my life, wanting to give up. It is too hard, God, for me to keep praying this I, I believe it's your will, but it's hard. There's an emotional investment in this, and I feel like my hope deferred is making my heart sick. Do you hear what I'm saying? And maybe that's where you're at today and your heart is sick. Hannah's was. Her, her soul was overcome with anguish and sarcasm from Peninnon and, and, and accusations and, and, and just mockery. And even Eli himself falsely accusing her. She felt the trample of Satan's foot. But didn't we learn just last week that it is not us that will be trampled, that the God of peace will trample Satan under our feet? That is desperate prayer. That's what happens when we pray desperately and press into God and begin to know his will. And that's birthed in us. And we pursue him with with such vigor and adamancy that it says that the Romans obeyed. There was unity, no matter what, no matter the cost. And he says, God will crush Satan under your feet. But some of us feel the shoe print of Satan on our back And I want to tell you, God is not wanting to throw water on that flickering flame. He's wanting to ignite a fire in your soul. Desperate prayer refuses to give up. Desperate prayer, number four, yields to the timing of God. It yields to the timing of God. It doesn't say you've got one week to put Cheetos in this vending machine. It doesn't say, God, I'm going to give you just two weeks, and if you don't come through. Now, I've had God speak that to my heart, might give me two weeks. But I want to be careful not to say, God, you've got two weeks. God wants to answer it in his timing. If God sought to deliver Israel too soon, he either would have delivered Israel without the man Moses, who was the most humble man in all the earth, or he would have used a Moses at the age of 40 instead of 80 who was not ready. God's timing. Desperate prayer yields to the timing of God. Number five, it allows God's purpose to prevail. And this is what we begin to recognize as we pray and press in and we begin to lay hold of what God truly wants. Because in that time of sorrow and grief, that Mike Curtis prayer changes and morphs because Mike Curtis's heart is changing. And I begin to be praying God's prayer. And the Spirit of God is stripping me and self away so that the Spirit remains. And it is the Spirit praying through me, praying through you. Allow God's purpose to prevail. Because when God's purpose prevailed in His timing, God birthed a deliverer for Israel in the person of Samuel. And then lastly, as I've been saying, desperate prayer changes the prayer so God can bring the answer like revival. Can you stand with me? Anna prayed and prayed and prayed. Lord, give me a child today. That's a song I can't remember the rest. It's been too long since I would sing it with my kids. But God brought about through the anguish of her heart, through the closing of her womb by God himself, he brought forth this prayer from Hannah's heart that God delighted in and he answered. As we pray, would you just allow God to burden your heart with what's on his heart? Would you allow God to pray through you? And, and, and would you allow him to speak hope into your wearied soul? Would you allow God To speak peace when he wins this battle in prayer in your heart. Father, I do ask that your purpose would prevail. God, as we are seeking you, even to the point of dismay, to the point of despair. Yet not giving up completely hope. At the end of our rope, though, may we be humbled before you, broken before you, desperate before you. God, I believe in your heart there is revival. There's many other things and and sometimes we're even ashamed to even suggest things that are so small but they would mean so much to us. But Lord, revival, I know, is on your heart. You are in the process of trying to prepare your people. Father, I fear that we are resisting you. We're fighting you in our flesh because you're trying to crucify our flesh. We're not yielding. Our perseverance is so thin. God, would you forgive us? When we prayed a few times and we gave up, wondering if you even heard. Would you change us, God? Would you bring us to that point of desperation? We're not afraid of that. That's our declaration today, God, in faith. We are not afraid of that. But there is cost, there is pain. It is out of that that you will birth revival. It is out of that that you do amazingly awesome, great things do not shrink back from that so God birth that type of praying in us we are wearied and tired of our listless list of prayer requests teach us how to pray change us when we God, we are asking when we pray, when you, so to speak, open the world, birth something so marvelous that we stand back in utter amazement, far more than all we ask or imagine. Because our God does the impossible. Because you, God, do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So God, in our hearts, where we're at right now, today, right now, raging fire, unstoppable by the enemy himself, that it would consume our foes, in fact, this adamacy, this faith that would rise up in us, God, and that we would see Satan himself fall like a flash of lightning from heaven, that, God, your will would prevail on this earth. You would bring about revival. You would bring about these answers that we are crying out to you. Change me. Change me, God, the prayer. Please. And do marvelous things. Birth Sam.